Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Sophia Amaral. Sophia is an economist at the Center for Labor Economics of the IFO Institute at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Sophia, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank you, Jen, for inviting me. Today, we're going to talk about your research on sexual harassment in public spaces and what to do about it. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. So I've been working almost exclusively on the topic of gender-based violence and violence against children in a variety of contexts, such as India, which we're going to talk about today, but also the UK, Mozambique, or El Salvador. And the main reason why I got into this is because, first, it is a very huge policy problem. The rate of victimization of the different types of offenses within uh, gender-based violence are very high. Of course, we know that one in three women are victims of domestic violence, but we also have, for example, when it comes to sexual harassment in public spaces, the topic of today, about 50% of women worldwide have experienced it. And the truth is that from a research perspective, we know very little about it for a variety of reasons. And this is what got me really interested in addressing this problem and trying to think about ways to contribute to the discussion. So your paper is titled Sexual Harassment in Public Spaces and Police Patrolling, Experimental Evidence from Urban India. It's co-authored with Gurija Borker, Nathan Fiala, Anjani Kumar, Nishith Prakash, and Mika Sviachi. Quite a dream team there. So set the stage for us a bit in terms of the context in India specifically. What types of harassment are you interested in? And how big a problem is this in that country? Yes, a great team. I'm very happy <laughs> to be working with such knowledgeable co-authors. So street sexual harassment in public spaces in urban settings in India is a very big problem. So we know from recent surveys that about 79% of women are subject to it on a yearly basis. Uh, We also know that in our setting in Hyderabad, the city where we work, in 75% of women feel unsafe after 4 p.m., So 75%, this is a huge rate of feeling unsafe. Mm -hmm. We also know that 87% of these women take some measure to protect themselves from sexual harassment. So here we're seeing two or three things. One, that harassment, victimization of harassment is very high, that women form perceptions about it throughout their day, and that they change their behaviors, creating coping mechanisms to protect themselves from sexual harassment. And the question is, then, how does this impact women's entry into the labor market, women's physical mobility, and well-being while they're out and about and participating in the economy? So this is what got us really interested in why this is such a big problem in India, but also in other urban settings in developed or high-income countries. Can you give us some examples of what kind of harassment we're talking about here? Is this like people staring or calling out at you or what should we have in mind? 
So sexual harassment, so in the literature, is defined as being forms of unwelcome sexual advances that involve verbal, nonverbal, or physical. So it's a very wide uh, spectrum of severity that can go from staring to stalking to intimidating to touching, groping, uh, taking pictures without consent. So to the more severe but also more rare events like rape or uh, physical abuse. So there's these very different types of harassment, and this is actually going to be important in our paper too, distinguishing very well between mild forms of harassment for which the rates are higher, but are also less consequential to more uh, severe forms of harassment that are more consequential, but also have a uh, lower rates of victimization. And so you mentioned that we don't know much about this from a research perspective, So when you guys were first starting this study, what had we known? What evidence was already out there about how to address this problem? Yes. So there's two sets of literature here. On the one hand, we have some work uh, in sociology describing the problem, describing its incidents, describing this aspect, trying to really understand how to define and how to think about harassment. So they've identified a very interesting work in establishing the patterns that harassment is more likely towards women, it's more likely committed by strangers. There's this very uh, wide spectrum of um, uh, severity of offenses. So this is the first piece of research that has been out there for some time now. And then when it comes to research in economics, our discipline, we have work from my co-author, Gidi Jaborkar, showing that indeed women make very rational decisions. For example, when it comes to choosing university college, depending on how safe their commute is. And they're indeed showing that they choose colleges of lower quality that they could have gotten into in order to have a safer commute. So here we have a really important piece of evidence showing that there is this relationship between safety and a very tangible economic outcome. We have the work also from Zara Zidik looking at the correlation between perceptions about harassment, where you reside, harassment towards women, and how it lowers female labor participation. And this, again, goes back to this point that sexual harassment and perceptions about it have a negative correlation in women's economic and power outcomes. And we have also evidence from Brazil, from Fondelis, showing that women are actually willing to pay for a safer commute. And this seems like a very trivial result, but it's not so trivial because it is putting a number, a dollar amount to how much women really care about their safety and how much they really uh, integrate safety into their uh, economic decisions on a daily basis. So these Three pieces of evidence really highlight how important this is for women's economic empowerment. However, then the issue is that there is a missing link establishing a direct causal relationship between safety and women's economic outcomes. And the reason why this has been a challenge in the literature is because it's really difficult to change safety. How do we vary safety of sexual harassment in these contexts of large, complex urban spaces? 
And this is where I think our work really makes a contribution. And so what makes this so difficult to study? What do you see as the main hurdles to figuring out what works to reduce this type of sexual harassment? Is this mostly a data challenge, mostly an identification challenge, or both of those things? Right. So I think data is the first big challenge. One, of course, we cannot use reporting data. And here it's really an absolute no-no because this is hardly ever reported. I think in our surveys, we see that only 16% of women have ever uh, reached out to the police to discuss sexual harassment instance. So this is really not an option here. Two, uh, there is a, a, a much like any other form of gender-based violence, a stigma to revealing uh, to enumerators or trying to disclose this information when women are interviewed. And then the third point, which then makes it more difficult from a research point of view, is that it is a very frequent offense. So even if we were to survey women, say after a year, in between that year, this happens so often that women have a difficulty recalling exactly how harassment took place and when and uh, what time and what type, for example. So this makes it, of course, super challenging to measure in the first place, which is a necessary condition to study. And then from a research point of view, an identification challenge, harassment is a, a bit of a byproduct of norms and probability of punishment in the sense that it is very tolerated by even victims, perpetrators, bystanders, and state actors. So it really becomes difficult to understand, okay, how are we going to change the level of violence in these contexts? And when we have this uh, combination of high tolerable offense with very low probability of punishment. And there's also another issue, which is a little bit difficult to visualize, is the fact that harassment in our context in Hyderabad but so in other large cities, so Rio, De Janeiro, or in Mexico City, they're very complex urban spaces. And where we don't really understand, or we can, it's difficult to measure the jurisdiction, for example, around a bus stop or in a large square where people are commuting. So this makes it really difficult to pinpoint the geographical space where these things are happening. So all these data issues, but also in terms of identification, makes it really challenging. And it's also a little bit different from when we think about studying domestic violence or studying sexual harassment in the workplace, because there we have a physical set space where things happen in a, a tangible relationship where this type of problem exists. But here, it's not so much like this. So th this is the, the challenge. Okay. So you worked with the Hyderabad City Police to study the effects of a novel policing program called She Teams. So tell us about this program. When was it created and what does it involve? Yeah. So She Teams is a really fun and really well chosen name for this task force, actually. It stands mm -hmm. for Safety, Health and Environment Teams. It is a specialized task force that only handles sexual harassment in public space. This is their task. They are not dealing with traffic. They're not dealing with robberies. They're not 
specialize in any of this. This force is a, it's very novel, at least we haven't heard in our group any type of policy of this kind. They started operating in 2014. And remember that they, in the, of course, cities are often very highly populated. And in this context, this is not no joke because they serve 9.7 million people. So it becomes a very interesting context to study in the first place. And what they do exactly is, so they initially they patrolled undercover and the idea is to really focus on arrests, detecting perpetrators, identifying them. They create a criminal history for these perpetrators and monitor them. They talk to their families and uh, they receive fines or are arrested and taken to court depending on the severity of the, the offense. They also have very high social media uh, presence. And the idea behind this undercover policing was really to play with two aspects. One, that there is a, it is a relatively small task force for the scale of the problem. And two, they wanted to create this omnipresence of the police around the city. So have a sense, create a sense to, uh, on victims, on women, and on potential perpetrators that the police is there. You don't really know where they are, but they are around. So be aware that you're being monitored for this purpose of sexual harassment. So this was the idea. And so they implemented that before you all got involved or was that, were you involved from the start? Yes. So they were operating in a, a very small scale, mm-hmm. but already there was quite a lot of interest to, from the media, from researchers and policymakers, because there's really not much being done at a time in India on this topic. Okay. So once you all got involved, this program expanded a bit, I gather. And so then it moved on from just being this undercover aspect to having uniformed police as well, right? So what were the teams that that you all studied? Right. So when we first started engaging with the police and starting understanding the theory of change behind uh, the type of police patrols, we got into a very interesting discussion. And in the end, we agreed that it would be really interesting to vary two things in terms of the police patrolling. One, let's keep the status quo of undercover policing And in any case, we're improving the presence or increasing the presence of police in the streets of Hyderabad. But we also want to test this type of police patrol on a police that is visible in which the officers are in uniform. And so we're varying this, both the presence, but also the visibility. And this is really important in a paper because of the following. So if we think about undercover policing, they are right. If a police force is maximizing arrests, then undercover is probably really efficient because you get the element of surprise when you're trying to identify perpetrators committing an offense in the act. This all seems really reasonable. But harassment happens at a very large scale in the city. So we thought, okay, but maybe we know from the literature that police patrols work and they work when they are visible because we think they have a much more higher effect in terms of deterring as opposed to incapacitating individuals. So let's incorporate this. And for harassment, it's become a really important part of the story because it's really signaling to victims 
and perpetrators as well that the police is there and cares about this problem that affects women. And the way, the way we did this is to really reform teams. Each team has three officers. They have to have at least one female and they follow a typical police patrol program of visiting different hotspots throughout the, the week. Okay, great. And so you've touched on this already a little bit, but just to walk through it kind of in a bit more detail. So what are the various ways that these she teams, both the undercover and the the uniformed uh, teams might affect sexual harassment in public spaces? What are the mechanisms that we're most interested in here? Right. Yes, exactly. So we think uh, or initially when we before uh, running the the study, we thought that their their presence could change victims' behaviors. They feel women would feel more empowered uh, to be more uh, out in the street, increase presence of women in the streets, but also at the same time could deter perpetrators by signaling that now the probability that you are being uh, identified if you commit such crime is higher and therefore you're going to update your release about punishment and therefore you won't commit uh, such offenses. So we would have these two sort of mechanisms here at place on the women's side, so potential victims and on potential perpetrators. So this was a little bit of the idea. Great. And then you mentioned that you're going to randomly assign these patrols to different hotspots. So you're running a randomized control trial here, a nice field experiment. So how did you decide where the hotspots were or where to send these different teams? Yes. So what we did before starting is two things. So first, we collect a survey of women who are commuting around areas that the police had identified to be areas of high sexual harassment. We interviewed about 30 women per area before starting everything. And in there, we asked women about their experience with harassment in the previous month. So this was the first exercise. The second exercise that we did was to recruit enumerators and train them to be as like the police and almost patrol these areas and code which forms of harassment they were observing while they were at the hotspot. So suppose I am one of these enumerators, I would go to Times Square, for example, Times Square is very large, but I would go to Times Square, I would be there for 20 minutes, observing at about five women, and I would code what is their insta- the victimization of harassment that they are facing, how they look like, what type of harassment are they facing. So then what we did is to combine these two sources of data. One is observed, so it doesn't have this aspect of reporting uh, affecting the, the measure. And two is asking women directly where we think, well, maybe they won't tell us everything, but they are still going to tell us some uh, very high valuable uh, pieces of information that we can use. We combine this data, and what we see when we map this is that we have indeed areas, very clear areas across Hyderabad where these rates are indeed much higher than others. We call these hotspots. So based on this, we've identified a variety of these hotspots and then we worked with the the hotspots identified for the study to be areas where harassment is very high. 
And then, of course, as you've mentioned, we can't just uh, allocate police to these areas without any sorts of variation because, of course, police placement could be uh, correlated with the characteristics of the area. So, indeed, what we ended up using as a tool for identification is to vary randomly where officers would patrol and how they would patrol, either in a uniform or undercover. And then how do you use that, um, that randomized experiment to measure the causal effects of the SHE teams? Yes. So these officers, they were patrolling for about 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. So every week they would go randomly for short periods of time to an area. They would conduct their activities of patrolling. And we collect this information of where teams of patrols are at each point in time. So we actually have very good data collected through GPS tracking devices that were in each police vehicle. So we track where officers are. At the same time, through during the 24 weeks, we have this exercise of women observing what is happening in terms of harassment at each of these points in time. And remember, this is really crucial to have because, as I mentioned before, this way we have a measure that is of high frequency that is not related to the intervention because the enumerators weren't aware that there was this underlying RCT going around. So they are blinded to the actual experiment and they are not the victims themselves. So they are just telling us what they are observing. So we do are hitting the right on the difficult challenges of harassment when we do this. And then, of course, because we have this very nice randomized experiment, we can really be able to identify the effect of increased presence of police in uniform in comparison to a control area where we have hotspots that are areas of also very high rates of harassment, but for which they did not receive any form of patrolling, whether in uniform or undercover. It's just business as usual. And then we compare how this harassment in this control area relates to the two treatment arms that we have. Great. Yes. The randomized control trials are very difficult to set up, but then once you've got them running, you just have to compare uh, the outcomes across places and it becomes very straightforward to measure the causal effects. So wonderful. I'm curious, I would love to hear a little bit more background about how this partnership came about. How did you all start working with this police department? Did they come to you? Did you go to them? How excited were they about this? Did they take some convincing? Give us a little bit of the backstory here. Sure. So as you mentioned at the start, yes, it is a very good uh, team of co-authors. In particular, Nishit Prakash, he was brought up uh, with a father that is a very uh, senior police officer. So he is familiar with many senior police officers in India, and he knew Anjani Kumar, which is great. Anjani Kumar was the commissioner of Hyderabad at the time. So this became uh, a very good friendship and helped started this conversation about how a research and a policymaker meet up, what can we do, what are the problems they're facing, how can I help? So this is where things started. And then from then onwards, both Mika, Girija, myself, Nathan, we all went various times to Hyderabad to, one, build a relationship 
and to establish confidence in us about what we were going to do, how we were going to use the data from the police, how we were going to sit down with them and understand how the organization works, how the program works. This is very important. So it's very important to them, but it actually was also extremely important to us because without it, we wouldn't be able to build an instrument of how to measure sexual harassment. What are the things we need to think about as victims, as perpetrators, as police officers when we're studying this program? So this initial phase that we had of about six to eight months, so it is a long time, of building this relationship and establishing a common ground to work was really important. Uh, and then from then onwards, once we had an agreement of what we wanted, where we wanted to go, and what were the things we're willing to compromise and are not willing to compromise, and we just move forward. Amazing. Very cool. You have mentioned this data a few times, and yes, so measuring harassment is uh, is certainly not easy, uh, especially in this setting. You can't simply rely on official reports because it's rarely reported to police. So you all developed this, this new observation-based measure of harassment where you had these enumerators go around um, and, and actually watch these areas. So tell us more about how that worked. How do they actually do this in practice? So we recruited about 170 women. They were working in batches and they were trained much like the police so we were always trying to mimic what the police does, but with our enumerators, we train them in understanding what is an instance of harassment. So for example, catch calling, if you see someone being catch called, yes, that is an instance of harassment. If you see someone being stolen their wallet, well, that is not harassment. It is an offense, but that is not harassment. If you see someone being stalked or being taken pictures and they are not really aware or they are not feeling comfortable about someone having their picture taken without their consent, that is harassment. So all these different items, I think 14 items that we trained women and they actually did theaters illustrating different types of harassments. They practice uh, in a real setting in these urban, very complex spaces how to identify these instances. And then what happened was very simple. They were just regular women, just like you and me, walking about in the streets. Citizens wouldn't be aware that this was happening at all because it's just like a regular person that is there. They would go to an area. They would be there between 15 to 20 minutes with their mobile phones. They would be observing what was happening. They would observe up to five women and they code if there have been a victim of harassment, yes or no. And if yes, what types of harassment were they a victim of? Once this is finished, set collect the data on their mobile phones and move on to the next location. And this happened for a period of 24 weeks. And of course, this is a really difficult job, remember, that you're thinking about harassment and victims of harassment your whole day. And while walking from place to place, this is really difficult. So because of this, they were working in batches. So at a time we would only have about 
20 women uh, doing this, this task, and then uh, a new batch of women would come to uh, initiate the same uh, task. This would avoid fatigue and any concerns relating to any potential trauma of having to constantly be reviving uh, what harassment is. Yeah, and I imagine there you had you all had to think about ethical concerns here too, right? I mean, if, if these right. individuals were watching <laughs> and observing harassment and observing potentially women who are in trouble, what were they supposed to do? At the end of the day, they are women just like you and me. Mm-hmm. And this would be the experience that they would have if they were in any other job. Two, they would always had um, an additional person with them to help in case uh, something happened. And they also had a very good uh, referral and immediate contact that they could use in case uh, something happened. We also made sure that all our enumerators had a support system after every day in the field and after every week where they could talk about anything pertaining to the study. So here we really tried as much as possible to be extremely careful in thought thinking about the different ethical issues that would uh, concern this task. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this amazing data that these enumerators are um, collecting for you painstakingly. And then what other data did you have for this project? Yes. So another really important concern we had at the time was, okay, so we're going to ask the police to patrol in this area, but not this area. Why would they follow our instructions? How can we make sure that they respect the rules of the randomized controlled trial? How can we do this? So here, each team of police patrols, they would travel on their own vehicle. And they had this data was being tracked. So we know where they were at each point in time. So they would be complying or not complying with the shift that they were assigned, uh, the route in the shift that they were assigned for that day. So this is really useful because then we can see exactly how many visits they did, uh, how long did they stay there, and exactly what they did when they stayed there. If they've seen a perpetrator and arrested this person, if they granted warnings, and this allows us to test, one, compliance with the rules of the intervention, two, if there is a potential incapacitation effect from their presence in the hotspots. We also collected some the, the women's survey, as I mentioned at the start, which is really good because then we can uh, have measures of footfall and women's protective uh, measures and baseline information about social norms around harassment. Okay, great. And then the, so the main outcome measures you're interested in are what? Observed harassment by the enumerators and what type of harassment. So here, as I mentioned at the start, in this topic, it's really important to distinguish between severe and mild forces of harassment because they're so distinct. Our main outcome is really the number of victims observed of harassment per exercise. Uh, So this is our main uh, outcome. Okay. And then um, just briefly, what what is in each of those buckets, the severe forms of sexual harassment versus mild forms? Yes. So for severe forms of harassment, we have 
physical abuse, intimidation, touching, groping, uh, and for mild forms of harassment, we have catcalling, uh, taking pictures without consent, uh, staring. Um, Great. Okay, so let's talk about the results. What was the effect of she teams on severe forms of sexual harassment? Okay, so first, so the police was right. So indeed, undercover policing is more effective at sanctioning perpetrators. And we do find that in areas, in hotspots, where the police patrolling in uniform, they have a higher incapacitation effect that when compared to uniform policing. However, both uniform or uh, undercover policing, the rate of incapacitation is very small when compared to the rate of harassment that the enumerators were identifying in the, in the streets. So for example, we found that they are able to sanction about 7% of observed instances of harassment. So this is the first result. The second main result that we have is that undercover policing does not change any form of harassment. So there's no effect on patrolling undercover on incidents of sexual harassment. However, uniformed policing reduces severe forms of street sexual harassment by 27%. So this is the first real piece of evidence linking changes in safety on uh, street sexual harassment in public spaces. So so just to make sure I'm um, I'm following this, so what you're finding here is that even though the undercover police were more able to make arrests and um, and get some of these these guys off the street, that might have had a small effect on sexual harassment. But overall, what you're finding is that the uniform police had a much bigger effect on sexual harassment just through pure deterrence. Everyone saw the police right. were there, and so they didn't do anything, and they didn't need to be arrested <laughs> in order to stop. Exactly. Exactly. So we do find evidence consistent with the presence of an incapacitation effect. Mm-hmm. However, this effect is too small to be able to explain the reduction in observed sexual harassment. And simply because the rate of harassment is much higher than what the police is able to apprehend. Mm-hmm. So just having a cop who's like standing there in uniform is much better than actually trying to get him to go around and, and arrest people. Correct. Okay, great. Exactly. And then interestingly linked to this, we find something uh, really interesting, which is actually in areas that were being patrolled by uniformed police officers and in areas where harassment was reduced, we also see a change in women's coping mechanisms associated with harassment. Particularly, women are less likely to be moving to other places and they are also less likely to having to use bystanders in cases of victimization. And this became really the first piece of evidence looking at how changes in safety by improving police presence in uniform, how this empowers women as measured by these changes in coping mechanisms that women don't need to have anymore because of this uh, improved deterrence capacity of the police. And so 
the uniform, putting uniform police in particular in these hotspots reduced severe sexual harassment and allowed women to kind of change their behavior and stop having to protect themselves as much. What happened to milder forms of sexual harassment? So here it's really interesting. We see no changes at all, regardless of the type of policing for mild forms of harassment. So really with this intervention of police patrolling, we're really just moving the more consequential types of harassment, the very severe ones. So the question then becomes, and why is it that even with this form of patrolling that seems so effective for severe offenses, why are we not changing mild offenses? And this brings us to the next phase of the study. Yeah. So then you, you, in addition to running this amazing field experiment, which is already a tremendous amount of work, you conducted a lab experiment with police officers. So yeah, why did you do this? And then what did the experiment entail? Yes. So we were really puzzled by this result. Like why is it that we're able to have a deterrence effect on severe form of the offenses, but we're not seeing anything for mild offenses? What could be driving this? So this really took us into a very long discussion, including with the partners, to try to understand this. So then what we did was, okay, so maybe this is because police officers have different abilities, skills, when it comes to detect sexual harassment. So I've told you, these are urban spaces, they are very crowded, harassment happens in very different forms. So could it be the case that their detection capacity is different by the type of offense within sexual harassment? This is our question number one. The second question was, okay, so maybe could it be the case that what if they think that doing something when it comes to severe forms of harassment is their duty, but when it comes to mild forms of harassment, they actually are much more tolerable towards it and therefore, they, 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 we don't see a reduction in mild forms of harassment. So we had these two competing hypotheses. One, detection skills that has a very clear policy action. Okay, let's train officers in being really good at detecting crime. Or, okay, what if it's not detection skills, but it, it, what if it is norms that officers tolerate different forms of harassment differently? So this is when we sat down, we built our lab in the headquarters of the police, we invited police officers that were in our intervention, as well as others, over 300 officers, and we conducted a lab experiment where we show them different videos of different situations that could have happened in the streets of catcalling, of taking pictures without consent, physical abuse, groping, neutral offenses, property offenses. And then we, we showed these videos to officers uh, in different ways. And for each video, we asked them, what do you see in this video? Can you identify what is the main event in this video? Do you think there is a need to do something as a police officer with respect to this uh, situation that is being depicted in the in the video and if so what action would you take so here we're really looking at measuring three things one are officers being able to detect what is happening in a video 
So can they detect sexual harassment or not? Two, are they willing to do something about it? Are they willing to exert effort to apprehend a potential perpetrator? And if so, what punishment would they give? So these three essential components that would be embedded in the decision-making of officers when they're out and about patrolling. So this was the idea. And so what did you find? So we found that, wow, they are actually really good at detecting. <laughs> so we vary the speed in which they, they see the videos. We vary the types of offenses that they are seeing, different types of sexual harassment by severity. And we do see that they have very high rates of detecting. So it's not the case that officers don't know what harassment is. They know it. So detection capacity is not the issue. However, when we compare their willingness to sanction and the actual punishment that they would be uh, willing to exert in this experimental setting, of course, in sexual harassment cases in comparison to property offenses, we do see that indeed they are less likely to think that there is a need for a police action and to give the correct punishment for the crime that is being depicted in each video. In particularly for mild offenses, they are less likely to be willing to punish and they punish it less in comparison to property offenses. And when we compare mild versus severe forms of sexual harassment, we do find the same thing, that they are less likely to think that it needs to be punished and they are less likely to grant the correct uh, level of punishment for that type of offense. So all in all, what this tells us and to put a bit the, the puzzle together, so we don't find evidence that they don't deter mild offenses because they don't know what it is. This is not the case. And this was a really our first hint was this. But there is something on around norms associated with mild offenses that it's not there for other types of offenses that is affecting uh, job performance. But you also found variation in that across officers. And so you went back and you compared how officers who behave differently in the lab, how they had behaved out in the real world when you ran your field experiment. Were the, the real world effects of the she teams correlated with what those officers did in the lab? Right. So then we thought, okay, so we have this result in the lab, but we also have a really nice data where we know where each team, where each officer is at each point in time. Okay, so let's combine this data and let's really try to understand if when teams have better norms, if they are actually able to address mild harassment. And we do see this. We do see that when patrol teams have better norms in relation to harassment, this is a very specific to sexual harassment. This is really, it's not general norms. It's norms associated with sexual harassment. When they are more uh, gender equal, more progressive in this dimension, they are able to deter mild forms of harassment when they are out uh, patrolling. Otherwise, they are not. And again, consistent with the rest of the paper, we do see that everything is again coming from uniform officers, not undercover. So we do have this component that one, officers are able to incapacitate 
but this is not enough for the scale of the problem. So we have a much higher deterrent effect. And two, deterrence when combined with officers that have very good skills, it's able to reduce harassment regardless of its form, if it's severe or mild. I think this is also really interesting because it suggests that you know, I was kind of saying earlier, you could just put a cop on a, on a street corner and they can just stand there in uniform and deter bad behavior. But this suggests that they're doing more than that, right? So they might not be arresting the person, but there's clearly a difference in what these police officers are doing, the ones that are taking mild harassment seriously and the ones that aren't. So maybe they're, you know, they're intervening in some way or telling some guy to cut it out or something while they're there at the hotspot that is changing everyone's behavior and pushing people to behave better. Is that right? Is that the way to be thinking about this? So, yes, and this comes to the really micro aspects of the deterrence. I think we haven't measured very well because you can be the ter- the patrolling and in a corner and do nothing, but even how you position yourself, where you are looking, the way you are looking, we're always communicating. Mm-hmm with each other. And it's the same with police officers. So it is likely, and this is of course something we don't observe in our data, but the way officers communicate with civilians in a verbal or non-verbal way is likely to be different based on their underlying social norms relating to harassment. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. So what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from all this? Yeah, so this is really exciting because after combining the lab results and combining with what we've learned with its effects, how officer skills and norms correlate with the performance of sheet teams, I think the first policy implication is very clear. We need to equip officers uh, in better ways if we are preparing uh, state actors in a better way to handle gender-based violence uh, offenses. So in this case, we're looking at sexual harassment, but if we're going to extrapolate to other types of offenses, we would have this very clear implication that, okay, they need technical skills, but there's also this component of norms and soft skills that officers can have uh, better job performance. So this is really the first uh, uh, policy implication. And then the second implication from this paper is that So police, this is the tool we studied, and I think it is a really good uh, first step. But sexual harassment, as we've seen in the paper and hopefully through this discussion in the podcast, it is a complex phenomenon and is very widespread and it's very high rate. So it's unlikely that we're going to address the problem just solely relying on the police and there is a lot that needs to be done in terms of prevention and early prevention and changing mindsets of the society at large, being say in schools or in communities, things of this uh, nature. Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you all first started working on this study? No. So in this topic really relating to safety and how it impacts women in harassment mm-hmm. from the lens of police, uh, not much. But of course, uh, there are work ongoing uh, in the context of Pakistan, for example, trying to establish this link between reducing women's constraints to mobility and how it impacts um, their uh, job job uh, outcomes. Uh, and constraints to mobility would also imply improving the safety in which women uh, commute, for example. 
But to my knowledge, um, not more, no. And so what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and this dream team you're working with and and other researchers will be thinking about going forward? (laughs) So in this group, so we're all very passionate about trying to understand police and the police in developing countries or lower income countries in because one there's not much understanding about how can we improve this institution because of course as you mentioned at the start it's really difficult to forge collaborations as you know so well uh, with the police so we don't understand it very well even though we've seen papers uh, in other contexts that is very important for uh, economic development economic growth and integration of all individuals within the society. So I think this would be the big, one of the first next steps. And the second, within the aspect of sexual harassment, we really don't know nearly enough how to address it. And we don't understand really well how women cope, how women make decisions and behavior and their behaviors around the topic of sexual harassment and how how this impacts their lives at the very micro level, which I think is something uh, we're going to keep on trying to to study in the future. Lots more work to do. My guest today has been Sophia Amaral from the IFO Institute in Munich. Sophia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.